Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp for the New Books Network. We're here today on the Native American Studies channel with Assistant Professor Mark Rice. He's Assistant Professor at Baruch College, the City University of New York. Welcome, Professor Rice. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's a really great honor to be invited. So we're going to be discussing today your book, uh, Making Machu Picchu, The Politics of Tourism in 20th Century Peru. Before we dive into the questions, uh, can you um, explain this quite striking cover on your book? <laughs> sure. Um, although I have to, it's nice that you said it. It, it is a wonderful cover. Uh, the problem is I can't take too much credit for it. Uh, it was actually devised by the publisher who, um, I believe the publisher found uh, an artist who makes kind of vintage looking travel posters. And the artist had made a vintage looking travel poster of Machu Picchu, and they just thought that really worked well uh, with the theme. And um, I, I mean, I saw it, and I and I thought, well, that looks great as well. So I, although I can't take too much credit for it, I have to give it to the to uh, UNC and uh, and and the publishers. I guess if to if there is an interesting backstory, uh, it does show this vista which is very common of Machu Picchu. If you see a picture of Machu Picchu, it's almost always this angle, which is, has an interesting story. It's uh, a lot of people think that Hiram Bingham, you know, takes this picture. But if you look at Hiram Bingham's photos, they're actually largely on the ground. They're, they're not, um, they're, 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 they don't look like this. And the person that invents this Vista is a Cusco uh, photographer called Martin Chambi. Who actually took a lot of photos for tourism brochures and booklets in the 30s, 40s, especially in the 1920s. And it was him who actually decided that really what made Machu Picchu very nice and pretty was actually the surrounding area. So he had the idea to climb up the mountain behind it and take this photo of the of the archaeological site and its environment. So uh, and it's it's quite remarkable even today. Uh, you see tourists, they want to get their, you know, their selfie or their, their Instagram ready photo. And they reproduce the same photo that was really invented by Martin Chambi in 1924, 1925. So, uh, so that's the, that's the story behind the cover. Um, and it, so it, it's very closely linked to the importance of tourism and how we interpret Machu Picchu. Thank you so much. So what prompted you to study the rise of Machu Picchu as a 20th century tourist destination? <laughs> well, um, partly kind of, I guess, desperation. <laughs> Not really. Um, I, it was uh, really, I uh, was trained uh, in, in, in history of Latin America, and I focused on Peru. And I was looking around for um, topics, and I was trained as, uh, in looking at economics and development. And I was looking at, you know, to write a history of, you know, either a commodity study uh, in particular or an economic history study. 
And I kept on finding topics that were interesting, but had either been studied a bit before and, um, or I didn't find very compelling. And while I was kind of running around archives, I, you know, I kept on running into tourists and one day kind of the light bulb went off and I realized that, you know, when I'm walking around Lima or Cusco, you know, you're seeing these tour buses get on and off. And I realized that no one had really taken tourism seriously, um, not just in Peru, but in a lot of areas of Latin America. Fortunately, that's changed. In the past, well, I'd say 10 years now, there's been kind of this really wonderful generation of historians that have taken tourism seriously. And that's kind of how it began. Um, so I started looking at the history of tourism in, in Peru, and um, I kind of focused especially on Machu Picchu. Um, and what I discovered was that obviously Machu Picchu is really well known, um, but very few people actually knew why it became famous. It was always assumed that Machu Picchu was going to become famous. So to give a sense, Machu Picchu is so-called discovered. Uh, we can talk about that a, a bit by this explorer named Hiram Bingham in 1911. And after that, it's kind of considered that um, he, um, uh, you know, after his expedition, it just becomes famous. And that's not a slight against any other scholars. It's that's partly due to tourism, because if you think about it, tourism as an industry um, has an interest in presenting sites as mystical and unique and, you know, inherently interesting. And Machu Picchu is inherently interesting. But tourism often likes to obscure the nitty gritty questions of economics and infrastructure and labor that create tourist sites. So as a result, you know, if you looked at Machu Picchu, um, which is the center of Peru's tourism industry, um, you know, uh, there's a ton of uh, material about its archaeological history. There's a lot of material about uh, Bingham's expeditions to the site and its controversies in 1911 to 1915. But then there's this big gap. And then you kind of see this uh, coffee table books and new books in the 1990s onward about Machu Picchu. Um, but no one had ever kind of stopped to think that, you know, there was this big gap. Everyone kind of assumed that after Bingham left, Machu Picchu is just destined to become famous. And what I discovered was that this was far from the case. Uh, Machu Picchu, there were a lot of moments in when Machu Picchu could have descended back into obscurity. Uh, another site of Peru could have become a big tourist site. Um, and that there wasn't this set model. There was not a linear kind of progression of Machu Picchu's rise to fame. It, it actually was a product of some interesting turns and dead ends and different projects were kind of grafted or built upon each other. Um, so that's actually what I discovered was that this tourism economy was, it was not very destined to become famous, uh, as people had kind of assumed. And also, uh, what I also discovered was that another assumption was that tourism at Machu Picchu was a product of Machu Picchu's fame, essentially saying that, you know, Machu Picchu becomes famous as a archeological site, as a national site. And because of that, it becomes a tourist site. And from what I discovered was it was kind of the other way around, is that from a very early on, um, 
tourism as a, as a narrative, as an economic force, as a cultural force, was present from the very beginning, and that tourism was not a product of Machu Picchu's fame, but was actually a driving force in its rise to fame. Why do you highlight the entwined roles of regionalism, nationalism, and transnationalism in the history of the politics of tourism in Cusco and Machu Picchu? Who are the transnational actors in your study? Sure. Um, well, as I kind of said, the Machu Picchu narrative is quite complex, and it often had a lot of different actors um, uh, acting in different ways. And in some ways, um, this was a history that ended up being about a century long that I was writing. And it turns out that there were, you know, uh, there were lots of different models of development and visions of what tourism should look like. But the constants in many ways were obviously Machu Picchu, uh, Cusco, which is the region in which Machu Picchu is located, uh, Lima and the national state of Peru, which is, you know, headquartered in the capital of Lima. But then also present from a very early stage were, were transnational actors. And by this, I mean um, various, a diverse group of, of actors that could have been academic links, um, economic links, personal connections, uh, and of course, tourism interests. And when I mean these transnational links, I mean these were actors that were not necessarily, were sometimes international but sometimes acting within Peru. But the important thing was that they were acting often independent of the Peruvian state, um, meaning that um, uh, you know, these could have been state actors, but often these were actors that um, were you know, working with the Peruvian state, but not were, always, were not always representative of it. Um, meaning that um, and this was kind of critical because it turns out that ma that tourism in Cusco was a result of these transnational connections between Cusco and academics in the United States or Cusco and European airlines, right? These were actors and networks that were operating alongside, but sometimes independent of the Peruvian national state. And this was quite important because for many, many years, Lima and the Peruvian national state were rather uninterested in developing tourism and certainly were uninterested in developing tourism in Cusco. So at times when Cusqueños didn't have the support of the national state, they often depended upon these non-state transnational actors to sustain tourism and sustain Machu Picchu's fame. And kind of to wrap it up, um, I mean, that's kind of the big theme of the book, uh, which is looking at nationalism and transnationalism as somewhat intertwined factors. I mean, we usually kind of look at nationalism and the success of nationalism as dependent on domestic factors. Um, and for a long time, many Latin American countries and Peru in particular were always held up as examples of weak or failed nationalism because they often had weak domestic economic structures or weak domestic political structures. And what I am arguing in this book is that um, often, sometimes transnational connections can be just as important in highlighting um, and identifying national identity as traditional national structures. And this is very clear in Machu Picchu, is that if you looked 
at Peru at the start of the 20th century, there wasn't a big consensus of what represented Peru. And there would have been people saying, well, Lima represents Peru or, you know, northern coastal areas like Trujillo represent Peru or perhaps Andean areas represent Peru. And what eventually happens is as tourism centers on Machu Picchu, you see Peruvians in Lima and other areas of Peru kind of starting to say, well, you know, tourism keeps on elevating Machu Picchu as this site of Peru. And you kind of see the national state and national elites begin to adopt Machu Picchu as this representative of Peru. Till nowadays, I mean, I think, you know, I don't think I'm over-exaggerating by saying, you know, now Machu Picchu is pretty much the global representative of Peru. I mean, I always kind of joke that, you know, if, if you went to, you know, Britain, for example, and you went to Britain for two weeks and you saw and you saw all these things, London and Scotland, but you didn't see its most famous archaeological site, Stonehenge. And you came back from your vacation and you and people would not think that was strange if you saw London and Scotland and these other places and you didn't see Stonehenge. If you are a tourist that goes to Peru and you don't see Machu Picchu, people will kind of think, what was wrong with you, <laughs> right? Like how you can't experience Peru without seeing Machu Picchu. And I argue that tourism is, uh, is a major reason why now we think of Machu Picchu as this representation of Peru. Before and after the First World War, how and why did Hiram Bigham, Albert Gisaki, Gusquenos, foreign travel narratives, and the Ligia government contribute, all contribute to the initial finding and forgetting, as you put it, of Machu Picchu and Cusco, particularly vis-a-vis Lima. Sure. Um, well, maybe I'll uh, unpackage, I'll maybe separate that into two sections, I guess. Well, let's go into the finding first. So the rumored finding of Machu Picchu um, occurs thanks to this American or U.S. explorer named Hiram Bingham, uh, who arrives in Cusco first in uh, um, in uh, the early uh, 20th century, uh, and then uh, arrives uh, back. He creates these um, these uh, essentially academic connections with people like Albert Gieseke. Um and um, what he does is uh, Albert Gieseke is this other really interesting person. Um, in the sense that he um, uh, he was a Philadelphia-born educator who's brought into uh, Cusco to reform the local university. Uh, there's a local university called UNSAC, uh, which is San Antonio Abad. Um, and Gisaki becomes kind of the dean of this university and actually kind of becomes this academic godfather of a lot of young scholars who are doing archaeology and anthropology in Cusco. And Hiram is kind of, Hiram Bingham is hanging out with these guys. And in 1911, he assembles um, uh, pretty much a private funding. Uh, Hiram Bingham was uh, very lucky in the sense that he married into the family that owned Tiffany's. Uh, so whenever he needed, he he never had to write a grant. Um, he he just would kind of call up his father-in-law and just kind of say, "I need money." Um, and so he kind of assembles this this uh, expedition, and he wants to find what's called Vilcabamba. Vilcabamba was the last uh, capital of the Inca, 
uh, we kind of think of the Inca as being conquered by the Spanish in the 1530s. But actually, the Inca uh, state, part of them escape Cusco after a rebellion, and they relocate into the interior of the Andes beyond Machu Picchu, I should say more towards the Amazon basin. And they actually exist um, for another 40 or so years into the 1570s uh, in a a new, it's called the Neo-Inca state. They actually have their own capital and they kind of coexist with the Spanish until they're finally conquered in the 1870s. And their final capital was called Vilcabamba. So Bingham wants to find Vilcabamba. He thinks if he finds this last capital, the Inca, this is going to make him really famous. So he uses actually these ongoing uh, networks um, in Cusco to start looking at archaeological sites. And he's using people like Gisaki and students at UNSAC to start exploring and to find this Vilcabamba. And on his way there, he discovers or stumbles upon, I guess is a better way to put it, uh, Machu Picchu. So if you read Bingham's narratives, or at least the touristic impression we have of Bingham, it's this notion that he's hacking his way through the jungle. He's this kind of Indiana Jones-like figure, when in reality, he was actually following uh, a path that was surveyed for a railroad. They were going to build, the railroad eventually does get built. It's the railroad you take to Machu Picchu if you go on vacation there. And he's following uh, essentially a surveyed area, and he's going into an area that was not a frontier, but, well, I would just say not underdeveloped, but was kind of this modernizing frontier. Cusco's landed elite had been uh, branching out, diversifying their agricultural holdings, and he essentially arrives at the base of Machu Picchu, and people are living there, and people kind of say, well, you should go up and check out this ruin. Uh, People knew about Machu Picchu. Uh, Bingham ascends the next day with the help of a Peruvian army sergeant. And when he arrives there, there's families living at Machu Picchu. They're cultivating some fruit and they have a few sheep. So Bingham, far from being the swashbuckling kind of Indiana Jones figure, is led around the the ruin by a small boy. Uh, Most people think his name was Pablito Richarte. Uh, So as I said, it's kind of picture Indiana Jones, not with the whip, and you know, out running boulders, but he's actually uh, a, like a seven-year-old kid is kind of just pointing out the ruins to him. And so Bingham takes that, and he it was he was a master of uh, self-promotion and using media. I mean, I think uh, you know, if Bingham lived today, he would be he would have a very strong Instagram, Twitter presence because essentially this is what he was doing. He takes photos. He promotes himself in U.S. magazines and kind of puts himself on the map as this discoverer of Machu Picchu. And he immediately claims that Machu Picchu is Vilcabamba. It's this last capital of the Inca, even though there's very little archaeological evidence for him to say that. Um, And Bingham returns to to Cusco uh, in 1912, um, in 1915 as well. But he begins to actually start... um, uh, Cusqueños don't like him much anymore. They start to, first of all, they don't like the fact that he's not giving them credit, even though he, the whole reason Bingham finds Machu Picchu is due to the previous work of Cusqueños. Um, and they're also mad that the proving government is giving Bingham tremendous control over archaeology and uh, the fact he's stealing artifacts. So he's put on trial for artifact theft in 1915, 
And he quickly leaves Machu Picchu, or he, he, he leaves Peru. He's kind of outraged that people are going to put him on trial. And he doesn't return for like another 30 years. Um, and when he leaves, surprisingly, Machu Picchu kind of fades back into obscurity. If you look at the 1920s, there's very little information about Machu Picchu. Very few people go there. Uh, Bingham largely abandons archaeology. And as a result, um, uh, the kind of the information, the transnational links that made it famous kind of dry up and Machu Picchu actually kind of fades back into obscurity. It remains just a rather underdeveloped uh, archaeological site. So as, a, as I was saying, far from being destined to rise to fame, in the 1920s, there's kind of this near-death experience in some ways. Machu Picchu kind of recedes to become less famous. And there's travel narratives from the 1920s of people that visit Cusco, and they don't visit Machu Picchu because they say it's not worth the trip. So uh, that's kind of the rise and fall of the first kind of discovery in kind of quotes of Machu Picchu. Now, how did Gisaki, uh, Indigenistas, uh, New Indian Mestizaje, and Cusqueño authored guidebooks set the stage for local engagement in the state-backed uh, 1934 quadricentennial celebrations of the modern city of Cusco, promoted, I recall, as the archaeological capital of South America? Sure. Um, so it's worth noting that although Machu Picchu might not, fa might not be famous in the 1920s, uh, Cusqueños themselves had a deep interest in promoting tourism. Um, and in particular, one thing I was finding is um, uh, this relation to indigenismo. Indigenismo is very broadly referring to this large cultural movement which existed in Peru and other Latin American countries that celebrated um, indigenous culture. Uh, whereas at the end of the 19th century, many elites in Latin America really questioned uh, the value of, um, of the place of the Indian in national culture. The indigenistas claimed that, no, actually, indigenous culture should have a place in Peruvian nationalism. Um, and what I found in my research was that tourism was actually linked to this. Um, because Cusco was the center of a certain type of indigenismo, but it was also competing against various different types of indigenismo. Um, during the 1920s, as you kind of said, um, there was a president of Peru called Augusto Leguía, who claims dictatorial powers and argues that he is going to modernize Peru from the top down. He looked at the traditional elites of Peru as holding it back, uh, and elites like the elites of Cusco were a target of his efforts. He wanted to essentially empower indigenous communities, but in only through him, right? So there's kind of a top-down indigenismo from the state. There's also a leftist indigenismo coming from Lima. Uh, socialists like uh, Jose Carlos Mariategui are arguing that, you know, there's a socialist indigenismo. And there's other regions of Peru that have indigenista movements. And finally, in, uh, in Cusco, you have a grassroots indigenismo, uh, essentially indigenous communities in the 1920s are rising up. There's, a, there's widespread agrarian rebellions in Cusco. The vast majority of Cusco's population was indigenous, and the vast majority of it um, 
was uh, living on these haciendas, which were essentially feudal estates where labor abuse was very common. So there was also was a grassroots indigenismo. But what I focus on is the official kind of regional indigenismo that's coming from Cusco. Uh, and this was essentially an indigenismo that celebrated I, the past of the Inca, and it celebrated indigenous folklore, but it kind of ignored the grassroots political demands. So it was kind of a celebration of the utopian past, a celebration of kind of folklore culture, but a silencing of the actual indigenous politics. And this was the indigenismo that Cusco's elites and middle classes kind of embraced. And this was where tourism came to play, is because what they realized was that um, tourism is actually a perfect genre to create a historical and folk and, and regional narrative. Because if you look, if you, I mean, most tourists, even today, when you visit a site, you're not going to go to the library and, 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 and you know, check out a history book. What you are going to do probably is buy a Lonely Planet guide or if, you know, a tour guide, and you're going to flip open to the spot that says history. And that's what you're going to learn. What is the history of the region? And these are the sites that are emblematic of the history. And Cusqueños understood that very early on. So there's this proliferation of guidebooks, not so much because there was a huge boom in tourism, is because this allowed uh, Cusqueño indigenistas to create a narrative that celebrated what their vision of indigenismo was, which was the safe, utopian Inca past and the celebration of a kind of safe, folkloric indigenous culture. And finally, they also emphasized Cusco as modern, right? Cusco always had lots of travelers, but they often were, you know, people like Bingham who would show up and they'd write academic articles and they would often say, you know, uh, Cusco is ancient and it's exotic. And tourism was a genre which did not exoticize Cusco, but celebrated it, right? So uh, Cusqueño um, tourism backers would use kind of these guidebooks and tourism propaganda to argue, look, we're modern, right? Uh, you know, uh, we are not, you know, a center for adventure. We are, you know, we're comfortable. We have hotels. We have amenities for modern cultured travelers. They want to come to Cusco. It was a way of kind of communicating to Lima that Cusco was this center of international interest. And tourism was the reason it was that center of international interest. How and why did publications by Bingham, U.S. travel narratives, and no novels contribute to the reemergence of Machu Picchu in popular consciousness? Sure. Um, well, as I said, there's kind of, as, as I was saying at the start, you know, there isn't this standard rise of Machu Picchu. Uh, as I just mentioned, in the 1920s, it kind of actually gets forgotten a bit. But then there's this rebirth of interest in Machu Picchu in the, uh, in, in the 1930s. Um, and in particular, there's a few reasons why this happens. Um, one is in the 1930s, uh, I know I, I, in the previous question you asked about the 1934 uh, quadricentennial celebrations, and this is kind of, this ties into that. Um, after the Leguia government falls in the Great Depression, Peru kind of enters into this period of anarchy for about three years, and the Peruvian government kind of reassembles this old coalition of elites in Lima and elites in Cusco. And suddenly, um, the, the state in Lima, because it's trying to sh kind of patch up 
traditional uh, alliances between the regional and national elites adopts this Cusqueño tourism narrative, right? So in 1934, there's this big celebration of the 400th anniversary of the Spanish founding of Cusco. And the tourism narratives that had been developed in Cusco the decade earlier are kind of made official. The Peruvian state adopts it. They celebrate this. They start spending money on tourism in Cusco. So in many ways, the Cusqueño indigenista narrative uses tourism to win out. And as part of that, uh, interest in Cusco builds, not just uh, on a local level, but now on a national level. Equally important, especially at the end of the 1930s and into the 1940s, is the pressures of the Second World War. The United States, fearing Axis influence in um, Latin America, starts this good neighbor policy, which is both uh, dipl diplomacy of non-interventionism and, uh, and various support for populist movements in Latin America to certain degrees, but also was a cultural program in which the U.S. government um, you know, spent a lot of money on propaganda celebrating Latin American countries. And what kind of happens is that these, the U.S. culture, I'm simplifying this a bit, but U.S. cultural uh, attaches and actors are going all around Latin America saying, okay, what do you want us to make a newsreel of to show in U.S. cinemas? Or what do you want us to put in U.S. school books that are going to show your country? And so they go to Brazil and the Brazilians think and they kind of say, well, we've got Samba, right? Okay, let's make a newsreel on Samba. They go to Argentina and the Argentines can say, well, we have the gauchos, right? These cowboy figures. Okay, yeah, let's do that. And so, you know, they, uh, these guys get to Peru and they ask, okay, what is uniquely Peruvian? And by the 1930s, it's the Cusqueños using tourism that have now kind of argued that it's Cusco and Machu Picchu that are what represent Peru. So when the United States is putting out propaganda about Peru, they're highlighting this very specific image of Cusqueño folklore and culture and increasingly Machu Picchu as the symbol of Peru. And as this happens, Bingham kind of gets reinvented. As I said, Bingham had left Peru under this cloud of mistrust and criminal accusations and suddenly Bingham gets reinvented as this benevolent Pan-American figure. He's no longer this, this kind of Theodore Roosevelt, you know, roughshod kind of man of adventure. He now is this kind of symbol of archaeological Pan-American cooperation. And in the interests of diplomacy, in the interest of attracting tourism, uh, Cusqueños and Bingham kind of bury the hatchet and they kind of embrace this very fabricated narrative of Bingham as the discoverer of Machu Picchu because it suits both the interests of tourism, it suits Bingham's personal interests, so he can he starts publishing and becoming more famous again, and it suits the interests of the United States, which also wants this image of Pan-American cooperation, right? So all of these kind of combine to kind of this reemergence of Machu Picchu as this famous site. And um, as I said, which is kind of indicative of this theme of the importance of transnationalism, right? the national states there, but also it's this transnational web of U.S. diplomats, academics, local efforts. Uh, so that explains the reemergence of Machu Picchu in the 1930s and 40s. How and why did the Office of Inter-American Affairs, the uh, Touring and Automobile Club of Peru, 
and National Tourism Corporation, how did they all spur the transnational expansion of tourism across Cusco? Sure. Um, well, as I said, uh, these the Office of Inter-American Affairs is the U.S. office to coordinate this propaganda. You also have this pro-tourism office in Peru, the Tourism and Touring and Automobile Club. Um, and not only do they spread propaganda, but they also start building support to actually start developing tourism. Up until the 1940s, tourism was largely a cultural tool. Um, it was not a developmental tool. It was being used as a, as a way of kind of promoting through tourism propaganda Peru. However, by the 1940s, now these various institutions are realizing that they can start making money off of tourism development. So they begin to lobby the Peruvian state um, to start investing in tourism. So, um, for example, one of the key moments of this is the Peruvian state um, creates this National Tourism Corporation, which is a state-run um, uh, a state-run company, uh, which is going to use the state to build hotels and roads and to really kind of start um, uh, developing tourism for economic development. And said once again, here's a case in which it's transnational institutions that are lobbying the Peruvian state to develop a tourism policy, which had already been going on in places like Mexico or Cuba. How and why did Inti Raimi and Cusco Week, <clears throat> including the 1944 opening of Hotel Cusco, as well as the uh, 1948 return of Hiram Bigham for the inauguration of a Machu Picchu access highway, all culminate in Bingham's archaeological monument, only to be stopped short by the Adria coup and dissolution of the CNT? So in the mid-1940s, you see this kind of early golden age of tourism, which then once again kind of gets uh, kind of terminated. So in the, by the mid-1940s, the Peruvian state, thanks to lobbying by transnational institutions like good neighbor di diplomats and touring companies you know, in Peru, is putting money into Cusco. They build a hotel um, and they even... Um, provide funds for this uh, celebration called Inti Raimi, which is this folkloric celebration of the Inca solstice ceremony. Even though if you go to Inti Raimi today, as a tourist, you're kind of told this is an ancient ceremony uh, dating back to the Inca. In rea and in reality, it's really kind of invented in 1944 when the hotel opens, right? So it's this kind of classic sign of how tourism is really inventing traditions in, in, in Cusco. Now, Inti Raimi does use Inca uh, language and symbolism, but it's kind of shifting it from other types of Inca celebrations. So it's kind of this very clear way in which the mid-1940s, you see the Peruvian state really starts spending money and endorsing this folkloric interpretation of an indigenous past or an Inca past as this representation of Peru. And this kind of culminates in 1948 when the, uh, the, the CNT, the National Tourism Corporation, opens up the highway to Machu Picchu. They finally get automobile access from the base of the mountain to the ruin, and they decide to invite Bingham back. And this is the first time Bingham's been in, Machu, been in Peru since he's kicked out in 1915. And he comes back uh, as a hero. He's celebrated, he's fated. 
and he cuts the ribbon to this highway, which is named after him. And it's kind of this, when he opens that highway, it's really kind of the culmination of this touristic narrative that we have of Machu Picchu even today, which kind of celebrates Machu Picchu as this lost city of the Inca, uh, which celebrates Bingham as the benevolent archaeologist man of adventure who, who discovers it. And in some ways, this is the tourism narrative that we still have today uh, when you go to Peru. Now, at this moment of, in some ways, as a historian, you know, I, I, I couldn't have invented a better moment of contradiction. Uh, thanks. Uh, fortunately, I mean, his, history itself, you know, provided it. As Bingham is, is cutting the ribbon uh, to this highway, which is everyone's hoping is going to open up tourism to Cusco and Machu Picchu, this project is falling apart. Um, by and because essentially by relying on the good neighbor policy, uh, Cusco's tourism is exposed to the whims of the United States. And by the late 1940s, the United States is no longer the good neighbor. It's now shifting to the Cold War, right? So it's now withdrawing support for democratic governments. It's withdrawing support for populist state spending initiatives. So, um, Almost uh, immediately, there's a military coup which overthrows the populist government. It was led by uh, a man called um, uh, Jose Bustamante. That government falls, and instead, a very conservative military regime comes to power, which has very little interest in promoting development in the Andes. It has very little interest in promoting uh, um, uh, uh, state spending. It's a very orthodox, liberal economic policy. So as a result, uh, Cusco's reliance on transnational networks in making Machu Picchu famous also shows the, the, the weaknesses of doing that, right? When this transnational support from the U.S. evaporates and suddenly Cuscanos are kind of back to square one after in the late 1940s. And they kind of have to look for new types of transnational connections to uh, jumpstart tourism. How and why did the Drias government's Reconstruction and Industrial Development Board of Cusco, also, if I recall, known as the Junta, and the Kugler UNESCO mission help shift tourism from modernity to, I guess, tensions between historical preservation and the develop and development in both Cusco and Machu Picchu? So uh just at this moment where things are looking really bad in Cusco, right? There's a military regime which is withdrawing support for tourism. Things don't seem they can get any worse. And then they get really bad because in 1950, there's an earthquake which destroys most of central historic Cusco. It's a very violent earthquake. So in 1950, the Cusco tourism project looks almost dead. There's no state support. An earthquake has just destroyed the city. I mean, it looks, as I said, this is another kind of near-death experience of tourism in Cusco. It looks like it's done. However, it's out of this earthquake that Cusqueño leaders are able to reassemble a new framework to help tourism survive. And they do it using a model, um, what uh, another historian of Peru, has uh, Mark Carey, has termed um, um, uh, as... Um, uh, a um, as what he calls disaster economics, um, 
And what, he, what disaster economics is, is after the earthquake hits, the national government is forced to kind of create these institutions. One is called the Junta de Reconstrucción, like the, the Reconstruction Board, and later the Corporation of Reconstruction. And these, so these are kind of semi-state agencies, which are kind of supposed to be these kind of, you know, authorities to reconstruct Cusco. Uh, largely to rebuild the city and to, you know, uh, industrialize and reform the infrastructure. But what Cusco's elite do is they use these institutions to divert a lot of this money to tourism. So whereas the state was not going to spend money in tourism anymore, uh, Cusco's elite used the earthquake reconstruction to replace the state spending that was lost in the late 1940s. And they also use new transnational institutions like UNESCO, which come out of kind of World War II, right? UNESCO is this new global transnational cultural institution, which Cusqueños are able to lobby to come to Cusco to advise them on how to rebuild the city and develop the, and develop the city. Um, so once again, Cusqueños prove very adept at um, using transnational networks to keep tourism alive. Now, there's problems with this. One is that in prioritizing tourism, Cusqueños largely, even with the help of UNESCO, largely don't, um, uh, don't honor uh, archaeological conventions. Very famously, uh, Machu Picchu is reconstructed in this era. era. If you look at photos of Machu Picchu in, in the 1940s, it looks very different from what it does today. Uh, actually, the, they use the earthquake spending money to build a hydroelectric plant directly underneath Machu Picchu. A lot of people don't realize if you go to Machu Picchu today, you are standing above a hydroelectric plant. It's very well hidden, but it's there. And while they're there, the engineers kind of are saying, well, you know, we've got all this concrete and rebar. Let's, you know, to build the hydroelectric plant, let's, you know, spiff up Machu Picchu for the tourists. So they essentially, you know, pour concrete and rebar and steel in Machu Picchu, which is completely ahistorical. It's not archaeologically sound to do, but they do it um, for the benefit of tourism development, um, you know, which is highly questionable, uh, but doesn't, rec- doesn't raise a lot of controversies at the time. Also, most seriously, is because elites essentially divert money to tourism, they lose an opportunity to modernize their region. Cusco, I mean, by the 1950s, Cusco's traditional agrarian economy is really in trouble. Um, uh, there's overpopulation. Uh, there's a lot of anger. And the initial goals of the earthquake reconstruction was to do things like land reform and industrial reform. But Cusco's elites don't want to do that because it threatens their economic interests. They're much more willing to spend money in tourism. So as a result, tourism survives. But it means that by the start of the 1960s, Cusco is facing a serious political crisis in the form of agrarian rebellions uh, and political violence. So on that note, you, you, um, let's shift to the 60s. Um, how did the uh, 1964 establishment of the Peruvian Tourism Corporation facilitate the introduction of domestic check service between Lima and Cusco, which you argue revolutionized the region's tourism development, but also intersect, intersected with uh, this and uh, future forms of Cusco agrarian unrest? So at the start of the 1960s, we kind of also get this 
very critical turning point. Um, Cusco is exploding in agrarian revolts, right? This is now, especially by 1960, right, the Cuban revolution has occurred. So the specter of agrarian revolts and communism is very, very clear to Peru's elites and also to, uh, you know, places like the United States. And very quickly, they begin to, the Peruvian state, which was not interested in spending money in Cusco tourism, suddenly believes that, okay, tourism is what's going to save Cusco, right? If we, if we use tourism to develop Cusco's economy, we're going to avoid agrarian revolts, right? So tourism suddenly, by the 1960s, the Peruvian state gets back involved in tourism. Uh, and they, once again, create new, you know, the Peruvian Tourism Corporation, um, all these kind of state industries to create tourism. And they're also helped by the technological change, which is jet aircraft. Um, the development of jets and jet service, which arrives in Cusco, the first jet plane to arrive in Cusco is in 1968, uh, revolutionizes this because essentially now tourists from the very booming consumerist United States and Western Europe, which have, you know, disposable income, now can get to Peru and to Cusco relatively easily. A lot of people, I mean, Cusco is two miles above sea level, which means that if you don't travel there in a jet, you are, you are traveling, you know, so high that it, you could get there by propeller planes, but the um, all the narratives say it's pretty miserable experience. Essentially, everyone would have to be sucking on oxygen because the planes weren't pressurized. So you'd get to Cusco and half the flight would be passed out or like drooling because they, they didn't have oxygen. So, I mean, like, a, so, you know, someone going on vacation, that's not exactly very comfortable. So jets really kind of, so in the late 1960s, suddenly you have a new opportunity. The state's going to spend money and also, due to technological change, you now are getting the prospect of middle class and elite tourists are going to be coming in large numbers to Cusco. How did the post-1968 Velasco regime implement the de developmental tourism of the Peru uh, UNESCO Tourist and Cultural Plan, as well as rural development in Cusco for elite travelers? And why did this implementation, as well as the uh, marijuana-smoking EP travelers, not indecent, indecent all right, uh, prompt a, a, an outcry from the Cusco press and elder Cusqueños? Sure. Um, well, uh, in 1968, uh, the Peruvian state is kind of at this quagmire. Um, there's a, the government is run by a reformist president called Belounde. But he unfortunately is blocked by in Congress. So the, the traditional Peruvian elite do not want reform. Belunde is trying to reform Peru, but he can't. And the military, fearing that, you know, um, if Peru does nothing, it's going to become another Cuba, the Peruvian military takes power in 1968. And the man that leads it is, a, is, is General Juan Velasco. And the Velasco regime in Peru is studied a lot because it's very unique. Um, when we think of military regimes in, in Latin America in the 60s and 70s, we usually associate these with very conservative um, uh, militaries. Velasco's military was not. It was actually a left of center regime, not because they were revolutionary, but because they feared that if they did not do reform from the top down, Peru would have a rebellion like Cuba from the bottom up. So upon taking power, the Velasco regime 
you know, enacts these huge reforms. They do one of the largest agrarian reforms in Latin American history. Uh, they nationalize most industry. They nationalize mining and petroleum. So at their face, it looks like a very leftist regime. However, um, if you look deeper into things like tourism, you realize that it was much more complex. So for example, the Velasco regime continues and actually opens the floodgates to spending money in Cusco um, because they want, once again, they believe that if they develop tourism in Cusco, this will be a solution to rural development. However, quite interestingly, the Velasco regime, despite its leftist stance, um, you know, they do the numbers and they realize the, the way they're going to get money is attracting elite travelers. So although on the ground, the Velasco regime appears very, very revolutionary, you know, they're actually going to Citibank and they're, you know, they're negotiating with, you know, Wall Street and they're talking to Marriott and Sheridan and, you know, um, and, you know, Pan Am. And they're actually negotiating with very elite tourism because they wanted to attract elite tourists to spend money in Cusco. Um, and to a certain degree, this works, albeit it does create some problems. One is that despite their hopes, um, the Velasco regime, tourism never creates a trickle-down effect because um, it's kind of a contradiction. The average agrarian peasant is not going to be able to work in you know, the Marriott Hotel. Um, I mean, they would like to, but unfortunately, there's a lot of structural restrictions. You have to, you know, speak English and stuff like that. Also, uh, the Velasco regime, once again, creates controversy with preservation. Um, they want to build these big hotels, particularly one right next to Machu Picchu, um, which creates these big fights over preservation, right? Uh, where, you know, where do you draw the line between development and preservation, which creates a bunch of fights in Cusco? But finally, and what's kind of not predicted, is the, is the arrival of hippies. Um, whereas the Velasco regime, you know, is envisioning elite tourists coming on jet planes to Cusco to spend lots of money on rural development. By the 1970s, the tourists that show up, elite tourists show up, but there's a lot of tourists that are actually hippies. Um, once again, this is kind of a moment of strange luck. Precisely because the Velasco regime was kind of leftist, all these hippies that are being kicked out of Mexico, which is becoming much more right wing and all these military governments after Woodstock, they're all going to Machu Picchu, right, to become one with the earth and, and you know, to play Indian flute music and stuff like that. And this is a big shock to Cuscanos because unlike many tourist sites, Cuscanos love tourism because they thought because they believed tourism was what made Cusco modern. So whereas tourism in other parts of Latin America, like Cuba or the Mexican border town, was often looked at very suspiciously because it was associated with vice, you know, drinking and prostitution, Cuscanos had a very high opinion of tourism and what they thought were going to be cultured tourists. So it's a big shock when suddenly these supposedly, you know, in, in quotes here, cultured travelers from the global north arrive in Cusco and they're dressing like indigenous people. And, you know, they're, 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 you know, they're, they're smoking marijuana and, you know, they look very uncultured. So Cusqueño, you know, the parents just freak out because they look at this as, oh my gosh, this, you know, they're corrupting the youth. So if you read the Cusco newspapers, they're just, it's just a decade of editorials about the dangers of rock and roll and all this stuff. But if you actually talk to the, um, 
the well now they're all in their 50s but people that were growing up in Cusco they actually kind of liked it because Cusco was in many ways a rather provincial town and they kind of missed the 1960s the 1960s in Cusco occur in the 1970s when hippies arrive and suddenly Cusco's youth are able to you know interact with rock and roll records and you know go out with people from Paris and New York and you know smoke dope with them or do whatever so it's kind of this interesting moment in which the parents of Cusco are freaking out but you actually talk to the people that were growing up at the time they actually did have a very different interpretation it's really it was really interesting during interviews to see this kind of dichotomy uh, one person always kind of joked he kind of said, when I was saying, yeah, but you know, the, the editorials in the newspaper hated hippies. And he's kind of looked at me and he said, yeah, but you know, the kids of the people writing those editorials were going out and smoking dope with the hippies. You know? I mean, so, um, so there's kind of this interesting moment in Cusco's history, um, which also as a, the other kind of other moment is that up until that point, Cusco is being sold as a modern destination. And interestingly, in the 1970s, it reverses. It's now becoming a place that's mystic and ancient and mysterious. So the hippies also change the tone of Machu Picchu. It's now, it becomes what we see it nowadays, right? This, un, this place untouched by time, a very mystic place, right? How did pre-1992 Shining Path attacks, in a counterintuitive way, I guess, uh, spur the rise of backpacking expeditions and an adventure tourism economy in Cusco and Machu Picchu, while the post-1990 Fuji shock uh, privatization of uh, booming tourist institutions stirred yet another wave of Cusqueño uh, protests daring, for example, the uh, 2011 uh, centennial of the first uh, Bingham expedition that actually I think you uh, describe in the uh, conclusion of your book. Yeah, so... Um... In 1975, the Velasco military regime collapses under economic problems, and it's widely kind of considered a failure, and in some ways it is. It's, it's, it's plans to use tourism to, as a source of sustainable social development in Cusco don't really work. But it does leave two really important legacies. One is that through the agrarian reform and by opening up Cusco tourism to U.S. corporations, it wipes out the old Cusco elite that had once controlled tourism and makes it much more globalized. The other thing that was unpredicted is the hippies that everyone originally hates, but end up becoming, once again, the, the reason why Cusco survives uh, in tourism in the 1980s. I said, once again, uh, kind of, I keep on going back to this, but here's kind of another near-death experience for Cusco's tourism occurs in the 1980s. Um, in 1980, um, to the surprise of everybody in Peru and international observers, a very violent Maoist uh, rebel movement called the Shining Path erupts in Peru. And uh, it's centered in the Andes. And throughout the 1980s and into the early 1990s, Peru descends into a real chaos of an internal war between Shining Path other rebel movements, and the Peruvian state, with Andean people kind of caught in the crossfire. Uh, also, it affects Lima. So as Peru becomes more and more dangerous, elite travelers don't go there anymore, and tourism you know, starts to fall. And interestingly, it's the hippies that everyone hates that stick around, and it's them 
who kind of without investment from the state and without a lot of elite travel, they start doing things like hiking tourism and adventure tourism and mystic tourism, things that were really not in Cusco before, but end up not only allowing Cusco tourism to survive in like the lean years of the 1980s, because it's kind of, you know, hiking and adventure tourism was rather low budget. You could do it rather easily. But when uh, Shining Path kind of collapses, its leadership is captured in 1992, and the proving government uh, under another dictator, Alberto Fujimori, enacts this big privatization. It is exactly this new type of of adventure tourism, uh, hiking tourism, that becomes the model, right? Uh, So if you go to Cusco now, the Cusco model is very much about nature tourism and adventure tourism, and you visit ruins. And this was kind of created in the uh, in in the 1980s. It's almost like you know the hippies that kind of survived tourism in the 1970s and 80s return as yuppies, you know, and retirees in the 1990s and early 2000s. But now, as a very much elite level, because now it's not hippies that are doing the hiking. Once again, you've seen the re-entry of, you know, U.S. corporations and travel companies that now you have luxury tourism and luxury camping, right? So um, the effects are, you know, um, in the 1990s, tourism booms in Cusco. Uh, the, The Fujimori government opens up, they sell off the state assets in the railroads and airlines and hotels, and a lot of capital rushes into Cusco which in one sense leads to this big boom in Cusco tourism, uh, which is still going on today, but also creates a little bit of resentment because essentially this is um, a boom that is not owned by the Cuscanos, right? At the end of it, now it is dominated largely by financial interests based in Lima or outside of Peru. So as I like to say, one result of this is that thanks to tourism now, Cusco and Cusqueños are the figurative owners of Peruvian national identity, but are not actually in ownership of their own region's economy. If you look at the actual who controls Cusco's tourism, it is largely controlled from Lima, right? Which is exactly the reason why Cusqueños uh, embraced tourism in the 1920s. They saw it as a way of separating themselves from Lima's domination. And now, we've kind of have gone full circle. Cusco is now, in one way, their plans worked. They are the symbol of Peru, but they still have not escaped this, this often tension uh, and resentful, uh, resentful isn't a good way to put it, but I would say this feeling that they, you know, economic and political power is continued to be controlled in, in Lima. Right. I don't mean to say that Cusqueños aren't profiting from Cusco. I mean, from from tourism, they certainly are. But now there's been growing resentment that, you know, um, who really controls the tourism economy? And it's really not Cusqueños. Thank you so much. So one last uh, question. What can we expect from you next? Are you going on a vacation? Are you um, are you working on a new project or what? <laughs> yeah. Well, I always like, I mean, I, I might just ruin my entire credibility by, by saying this, but after I finished this book, I finally had time to actually take my family on a vacation to Peru. And I kind of thought it was very funny. And it talks about the power of tourism as a legitimizing force, because I am a historian of Peru. And I would be walking around Peru 
and I'd be taught, I'd say, well, this is a certain historical site. And I'd tell, I went with my parents and my wife and, and my mother-in-law. And uh, it, was a, it, was, it was a very nice vacation, actually. Uh, but one interesting thing, what tells of the power of tourism as a narrative is um, when I would talk about something, my own mom or my own dad or my wife, they would almost always say, well, are you sure? We should check in the guidebook. <laughs> you know, I would say, well, where'd you learn this? Did, did you read this in the guidebook? And I'd always say, no, I read it in a book that I have to do for my job. But, you know, which I mean, partly it's because I maybe I, I, I think it's just more my family, which I love dearly and they're very nice. And they've actually been very supportive of this book project. I should say that <laughs> before they get before now. I, now I won't get any Christmas gifts from them. But um, uh, but. <laughs> but it, it tells a lot about the power of tourism and framing narratives, right? Uh, and it was kind of an interesting reminder. I shouldn't have been surprised. I wrote an entire book about the importance of tourism in justifying a narrative and a sense of identity. And, you know, and you could see this with my own family. Uh, as for future projects, I still want to do travel in Peru. Uh, but now I'm going to look at especially the development of highways and domestic travel. Um, when we think about Peru, um, you know, my first project has been a lot about, you know, international tourism to Peru, but it's worth knowing that Peru also, Peruvians also can be tourists and certainly were tourists in their own country. So I'm also looking at efforts in the 1920s and 30s and 40s when Peru began to build a national highway network and a hotel system in which this growing Peruvian middle class um, was starting to go on vacations of their own. Um, and what that meant to them and their sense of nationality. So in some ways, it's very exciting. After looking at what got international visitors to visit Peru, uh, I'm now beginning to look at you know, what Peruvians were looking for and interpreting as they traveled around their own country in their own cars and family vacations. I'll be looking forward to that. Um, so thank you for joining us today, Professor Rice. I really appreciate you being on the show. Oh, thank you very much. It was a real pleasure. So this is Ryan Tripp on behalf of the New Books Network, the Native American Studies Channel. Uh, the book is Making Machu Picchu, The Politics of Tourism in 20th Century Peru by Professor Mark Rice. We'll see you or tune in next time.